This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. American Ballpark. It's the Better Off Red Podcast. Here's your host, Jamie Ramsey. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Better Off Red Podcast. I know it's been a little while between episodes and I do apologize, but we'll pick up some momentum starting today and start cranking out shows on the regular. This spring, Jeff Passan gave me an advanced copy of his book, The Arm, inside the billion-dollar mystery of the most valuable commodity in sports. Admittedly, I don't spend a lot of my free time away from the game reading books about baseball, but there was something about this one that made me want to give it a try, and I'm happy I did. Despite great efforts, baseball is slow in figuring out how to best protect pitchers' elbows. No one has it figured out, no matter what a columnist, analyst, coach, or someone on Twitter tells you. Passan uses his book to encapsulate everything involved in the tearing of a pitcher's ulnar collateral ligament, from the history of Tommy John surgery to how a couple of current big league pitchers have dealt with the injury, all the way up to how today's little leaguers are being used in games and tournaments. It's a fascinating look at one of the biggest problems in baseball, and I encourage all of you to spend some time reading the book. I can promise you, you won't want to put it down. But before we get to Jeff, I'd like to introduce you to the band David Wax Museum, which last year released its fifth studio album called Guest House. The band is made up of the husband and wife duo of David Wax and Sue Slezak. They refer to their music as a mix between Americana and Mexican folk. Here's the opening track from Guest House called Every Time Kate. This is David Wax Museum. Every time, Katie, I dream of your bed, I wake up with aches I never knew before. Every time, Katie, we stir up the dead, I want you just a little bit more. Thought I heard you say my name, thought I heard it faintly. Every time, Katie, I'm hanging by thread, it seems to be quite often lately. Time, Katie, I drive to your house, I get lost in the neighborhood. Every time, Katie, the fire gets doused, I run off to gather more wood. Sometimes I think that there's no point in wondering what could be. Every time, Katie, you wear that blouse, hanging fruit on a poisonous tree. He's one of the premier baseball writers in the country, and now he's the author of the best-selling book, The Arm, 
Inside the billion-dollar mystery of the most valuable commodity in sports, here's Yahoo's sports baseball columnist, Jeff Passan. Jeff, thanks for coming on the Better Off Red podcast. Jamie, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Ah, my pleasure. The first thing that jumps out to me is that baseball spends a billion and a half dollars annually on pitchers. Was that a figure? Was that figure something that contributed to writing the book, or was it a number that you discovered after you began the project? You know, I, I think that when I when I started this, I wanted to get just a, a sense of how much was spent, and when I added it up, you know, it made sense. It's actually up to one point seven billion dollars oh this year, and we are we are barreling towards billion dollar mark probably within the next couple of years um and it's a staggering number but look all, all the salaries that ball players make these days are a staggering number to me uh what was crazier is that you know the top 200 nba players make 1.7 billion dollars and uh you know nfl quarterbacks it's almost five times what every quarterback combined makes and so oh uh, the sheer the sheer scale uh, that Major League Baseball teams spend on this thing that they pretty much don't understand uh, that that to me right there was the impetus behind looking into this and trying to understand it better and trying to see why they spend the money that mm-hmm. they do. One of the many things I love about this book is that you really make it easy for the reader to understand the the medical process when it comes to Tommy John surgery. That's obviously great writing, but it also means you probably had to put in a significant amount of research on learning the details of the ulnar collateral ligament specifically and the arm generally. Yeah, uh, I, I will never claim to be a medical doctor, uh, and, and I have great amounts of respect for medical doctors, but, uh, you know, in order for this book to be successful and readable and yet true to the science and the medicine, I felt like uh, I needed to, to be as straightforward as I could without, uh, without losing people, and, uh, I, you know, striking that balance was not easy. Uh, People get a little squeamish sometimes about medical stuff, and uh, the fact that I started off the book inside of an operating room Mm -hmm. uh, is definitely testing people's patience. But uh, ultimately, I think that uh, the the balance between the the hardcore, important scientific and medical details uh, and the story that people like to read uh, is there and, and is balanced well. Reds fans who read this book will recognize a familiar name you followed and, for a lack of better word, were embedded in the life of Todd Coffey while he underwent the process of blowing out his elbow, his surgery, his recovery, and his attempt at comeback. Can you talk a little bit about how you got exclusive access to not only Todd, but also Diamondbacks pitcher Daniel Hudson, to whom you had similar access? Uh, I got very lucky to find two people who understood the vision of this book and what I was trying to do with it. I feel like this is, it has a chance to be an important book because a lot of people are getting hurt these days and it's not just major leaguers, it's children. And and I think when I put it that way to Todd, who has four kids himself, uh, and, and to Daniel, who... Uh, now has uh, a daughter as well, uh, it, it really it struck them that, okay, if 
if a book about the arm, if the if the real definitive book about the arm is written, um, maybe people will have better insight into how this how this thing really works and how athletes operate and what makes them tick and what the real human emotions are uh, to this, you know, plain, simple, what we think of as a plain, simple limb. Yeah, and you have uh, you have two boys yourself, right, Jeff? I do. And I that, do. that probably contributed to, you know, and I'm sure they like to play baseball, but did that also contribute to, you know, finding an answer to this epidemic? Yeah, I mean, I was I was helping run practice yesterday, and my eight-year-old is playing kid pitch for the first time, and uh, I am the pitching coach now, and I am in charge of uh, keeping uh, 15, uh, 8, 9, and 10-year-old boys healthy. And that is not a – it is a very daunting uh, task to take on because look, uh, the last thing I want or the last thing any parent wants is – a kid saying, my arm hurts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Keith Law uh, on ESPN a couple of days ago on Twitter had uh, just a, a coterie of people reaching out to him saying, because I got hurt when I was younger, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And uh, the, the response is there. You know, I can't, you know, lift my arm without there being pain. I, mm-hmm. I have trouble turning the key to turn on my car. I mean, there were there were just an absurd number of sad stories, and I don't want my kid to be that, and I don't want anyone's kid to be that, and that's why I feel like this can be important, because it, it exposes what the, the reality is of this situation and, and shows that this is not something that we can turn our back on. This is something that we, as adults, we as parents, we as coaches, need to take responsibility over uh, before it becomes our kid. So you're the pitching coach for your kid's team? I am the pitching coach for my child. Did, did, did they uh, Did they say, hey, that's Jeff Pass, and he wrote a book on the arm, so he's got to be the pitching coach? <laughs> I, I that, Yeah, that is pretty much <laughs> no, what happened. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. That actually is pretty much what <laughs> Hey, while we're talking about Todd Coffee, and you mentioned earlier that you opened up the book um, in the operating room, you were, were in fact uh, writing about Todd Coffee's surgery while you were while you were in the operating room. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Uh, I take it Todd had to, um, you know, uh, allow that to happen. Yeah, I mean, what you know, one of the prerequisites for finding a guy was I needed to be in on his surgery mm-hmm. like that. I didn't know that I wanted to open the book there. Like originally, in fact, uh, the first draft of the book uh, was not opened in the operating room. Mm-hmm. It was with Daniel Hudson the, the second time he blew out. Right. And I happened, and I happened to be there that night. Wow. But we, uh, you know, the editor felt like starting uh, with a good old punch to the face was the best <laughs> way to do it. And, uh, you know, the four hours uh, inside that operating room for the procedure were probably the four most fascinating hours of reporting that I've ever had the privilege of doing. Uh, I, and, and, you know, I needed Todd's permission. And sure. he was, he, it, I, I don't know how well you know him or if you know him at all, but mm-hmm. uh, he's, he's as, just as kind and open 
uh, a person as there is. And I was like, you know, can I sit in on the surgery? Like, yeah, no problem. I mean, that is, <laughs> those are like, Todd Coffey says, yeah, no problem, more than any three words that he will ever shrink together. And so I got his permission. Uh, Neil Elitrash, the doctor, uh, said mm-hmm. it was okay. And Dan Conti, the Dodgers trainer, happened to be there. Uh, you know, walking me through what was going on so I didn't have to ask Dr. Elitrash, and uh, it could not have worked out any better. Excellent. How was it, how was Todd and Daniel different uh, in terms of, um, you know, how you dealt with them personally as well as um, following their progress? Um, you know, they're just different, they're different people. I think mm-hmm. Todd's definitely a little bit more out there and a little bit more open, uh, which is not to say Daniel Hudson was closed off at all. He wasn't. He's just, I think, uh, he's, he's a little more introspective. And uh, he, he sits there and contemplates things a little bit longer. Todd is a, a very let's do it, let's do it now, gung-ho type of guy. Mm-hmm. And, and I love that about him. And I think they're, they're, they're perfect you know, the perfect contrast uh, in in their personalities, in their demeanors, in their stories, in their, uh, I guess, the, what they've lived through. Uh, you know, you think of Tommy John surgery as this single entity, but no. I mean, every single Tommy John surgery has a different story. Do you still keep in touch with those guys? Yeah, talking with them all the time, or texting with them at least. Uh, I think I talked to Coffee last week. It's been, I try not to bug Hudson too much during the season, sure, uh, because he's you know he's in the midst of uh, trying to win a championship sure. like every mile, mm-hmm. and he's actually up to a pretty pretty darn good start this year. Yeah, his both of those guys, their stories that you tell are are, are fascinating, and they put a uh, you know they put a human touch to it, and a lot of I think a lot of fans see these guys from a distance and I think, you know, you, you add the, uh, behind the scenes and you pretty much illustrated that, that, that they are human beings both and, and they're mortal and they can be hurt. And I, I that's an, you know, I talk about all these wonderful aspects to the book, but that one for me was, uh, you know, and I'm around these guys a lot. So to me, it was a great, the way that you put it was great. And I, I appreciate that, that you made these guys out to be human beings. Well, thank you. I mean, that's that's sort of the point, and I think that's where it, that's what allows the the book to have the resonance that I hope it will. Uh, if we sit here and look at Tommy John surgery like it's you know the day you get cut and the day you get back, that's fine. That's that's how we've looked at it forever. Mm-hmm. But it's not that first day and that last day that matter. It's every day in between. That's what makes the person. That's what makes that. That's what makes him who he is. That's what makes him interesting and unique and compelling. That's what shows what everybody who has Tommy John surgery has to go through. Each experience is unique, but all of them are richer than we give them credit for. And and when the average age of the Tommy John patient keeps getting younger and younger, I don't think they understand the consequences of what having Tommy John surgery means and of how it can change your life. And Todd Coffey and Daniel Hudson, to me, illustrate that as well as anybody. And while we talk about Todd Coffey, can you uh, enlighten our listeners 
by telling them the uh, about the Todd Coffee sandwich. I would love to tell them about the Todd <laughs> Coffee sandwich because the Todd Coffee sandwich is the best. Uh, Todd, as we know, is a, is a a large gentleman, right? And what uh, one of my favorite Todd Coffee facts is that he he's still at thirty five years old. Uh, drinks whole milk. <laughs> like, my, like my kids stopped drinking whole milk when they were two. Yeah. Uh, but the Todd coffee is, is still on the whole milk. Uh, he, uh, he one day in the Arizona Diamondbacks clubhouse asked the clubhouse manager to make him a sandwich, uh, two slices of bread. On one side, there's peanut butter. On the other side, there is jelly. In the middle are two Reese's peanut butter cups. <laughs> and you put, you put the two sides of the sandwich together. Uh, you start up a griddle, uh, you put a bunch of butter on it, uh, and then you fry this peanut butter jelly and peanut butter cup sandwich in butter. Uh, once <laughs> the uh, bread is toasted and crispy, uh, you consume and hopefully don't have a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned the Todd Coffee sandwich early on in the book, and I, you know, it was one of the moments where I actually laughed out loud. Where when I'm when I'm reading it, my wife looks over and says, "You're reading a book about the arm. It must be hilarious." <laughs> I tell her, you know, it's uh, you know, you, you you just have to understand the Todd coffee sandwich. Hey, Todd Jeff, coffee sandwich is. Have you tried it yet? I I haven't. I'm I'm going to try to uh, lobby the folks here at Great American Ballpark to make that a concession item. That actually would be unbelievable. You know what? That is. That's the thing. That is like the best legacy for Todd Coffee that could be left behind. I'm serious. Yeah. I, I am I am totally on board with that now. Whatever you need me to do to make this happen, because it's freaking delicious. You like, have It's one. really good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't even like peanut butter and jelly, but I love the Todd Coffee sandwich. Well, then we're going to talk to the folks here at, at Great American Ballpark, and we're going to make this happen. Maybe we can bring Todd in, and he could have the unveil. Oh, he would he he would love that. And you know what? Here here's the thing. Uh he he adores Cincinnati. Right. Like he has such he has such fond memories of Cincinnati. And I think Cincinnati fans actually look back on him like that relief pitcher from the 2000s who they will remember before everybody else. Oh, without a doubt. He 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 made a name for himself. Not he was now look, he was good. You know, a lot of folks think he was, you know, a journeyman right-handed pitcher, a dime a dozen type of guy. But when he came up through our system, he was really good. And he was also the guy that ran in full bore from the, the bullpen. So he, he was, he's got yes. fond, uh, I think the fans have fond memories of Todd here. Yes. I think running in from the bullpen to the ultimate warriors music <laughs> will, uh, will get anyone excited. Exactly. Hey, you talk about the, uh, the arm injury epidemic and how it's not exclusive to the United States. You spent time in Latin America and Japan, and the elbow injury is obviously similar in these places as it is in America, but what did you find in those other countries that might be different than here in the U.S.? Well, uh, I mean, down, down in in Latin America, it's, it's different because uh, you are training to be a baseball player from the time you're 11 or 12 years old. Mm -hmm. So uh, the idea that uh, you are playing every day because the weather down there is conducive to that, uh, and that you're going to be pitching a lot. Uh, it, it puts you in a bad situation. It's uh, you know I don't know if it's as bad necessarily as uh, the American system with 
the, the desire for maximum velocity at such young ages and the incentives that are put in place uh, to foment that, but uh, it's still pretty bad. Japan's worse than all of it, though. Uh, in Japan, you know, elite teams play 360 out of 365 days oh, a year. They take off. They take off between December 29th and January 2nd, and they participate in Koshien, the high school tournament, uh, where there is generally only one pitcher per team, mm. and that leads to things like Tomohiro Anraku. Uh, the 16-year-old who threw 772 pitches uh, in nine days one time, and mm. uh, he was he was throwing 97 as a 16-year-old, and he's barely throwing 90 now uh, as a 19-year-old. Yeah, that's that's all, that's almost criminal. Um, yeah, I mean that's you know that's what they say. They say the Don Don Demora, a long time player agent uh in japan said uh, this is child abuse and but you know if i remember right in that section of the book you did um you did write about the fact that that may be changing is that true i mean i hope so i'm optimistic that there is going to be change uh and they're discussing it but change in japan happens slowly and Mm -hmm. it happens over you know over the yeah, it's it's an over my dead body scenario, <laughs> and there are a lot of bodies lining up in front of Koshien saying, "We like this how it is. Don't change our tradition." popular myth that you put to bed almost immediately in the book is that throwing overhand is unnatural to the human body. Explain why throwing overhand is, in fact, a natural human motion. Uh, you know, two million years ago, when, when we're evolving from chimpanzees, uh, our shoulders are shrugged, right? Mm-hmm. Shrug your shoulders for a second uh, and try to throw. And it is impossible to do that. A chimpanzee cannot throw a baseball more than 20 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, as evolution happens and our shoulders start slumping down, we gain uh, range of motion in the shoulder. And that allows us to throw rocks and to throw spears and to survive. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of, of baseball, throwing a baseball, or throwing overhand being unnatural, could not be further from the truth. Uh, it is it is quite a natural motion in that it allowed us to survive. We became hunters and gatherers because of this uh, range of motion in our shoulder. And we are here these days because we threw overhand. So that to me is the epitome, the epitome of something that's natural. That is natural selection happening right there, live and in living color. But what is unnatural, you mentioned, is throwing a, a ball, what, 120 times um, during a game. That is un- unnatural, correct? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think there are some guys who can who can handle it, uh, certainly. But ultimately, yeah, that's what gets arms hurt, 
It's not the throwing, it's the repetitive uh, and competitive throwing. Mm -hmm. So, Jeff, how do you explain, and I know you kind of touch upon it in the book, how do you explain the guys, you know, back, you know, I hate using the term back in the day, but back in the day when there were three, four-man rotations um, for any given major league team and these guys were throwing 300 innings apiece? Because that was the expectation back then and because they didn't mind running through guy after guy after guy uh, in order to fulfill it. And and frankly, Cincinnati is about as good of an example as teams that uh, completely screwed up brilliant young pitching arms. Uh, it might be a better example than any Gary Nolan, if it's Maloney. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we can go on and on about the the absolute greatness that could have been with some of these guys, and I just think they got overused when they were too young. Uh, some guys can survive that, and and the guys who lasted were the survivors. But the the idea that this is something that happens without consequence, uh, uh, I think you have to put it in that context. You know, I spoke with Sandy Koufax in the book, and. Uh, he talked about how the Dodgers, at one point, uh, were bringing 600 players to camp every spring. Oh my goodness! That was like 600 players, <laughs> and, and and he and he described he described the scenario that was almost Darwinian. Uh, you know, yeah. guys would get, guys would get hurt, and the ones who didn't get hurt were the ones who made it. And we just needed to make sure we had enough arms there to make it. Wow, that is that that's incredible. So you can, and we can generally cite you know, statistics and information that pitchers back back in those days did in fact get hurt. This is not like something that's new to baseball where a guy blows out his elbow. It just so happens that we know we know what, what it is now. So, you know Of course, yeah. Pitchers pitchers got hurt back then and you know what? We don't know a lot of their names because they never made it. Mm-hmm. The guys who did make it, they got hurt too. Even the really good ones. And so uh you know, acting like this is something new uh, is ignorant. But here's the thing: we should have fewer injuries now than we did back then because of of just how far medicine has evolved. And unfortunately, we don't yet. We we have the same, if not more, uh, than than we always have. And that's where the problem is here. And while we're on this topic, also that contributed to this to this, I guess, epidemic was nowadays. It's a little bit different with, and you touch upon this in the book, of course, uh, the salaries that the players are making today compared to um, the rules back back in the uh, you know the the twenties through the seventies um, is a lot different. And uh, can you explain well, yeah, a little I mean, bit the, about the, that? The, yeah, the, well, the incentive is there for teams to, to keep guys healthy, and so um you know they think that the less they pitch the healthier they're going to stay uh, unfortunately i don't know that that's true and that hasn't been proven true at this point and and as well as the clubs could afford they could run through a pitcher if he got hurt uh they didn't really have that much of a, a financial stake as they do now correct yeah exactly and that's i mean uh, you know, back before players made any money, they were fungible. Uh, they are not fungible anymore because uh, they're, you know, they're getting million-dollar signing bonuses or not even million-dollar signing bonuses. I mean, if you sign, if you sign a guy for, you know, two hundred thousand dollars, you want that investment to pan out. And 
uh, I think it's interesting. You know, a lot of the a lot of the research that teams are doing right now are sort of on those fringy guys who may make it, who may not make it, but uh, they're going to do some testing on them, and you know, maybe they find something that ultimately changes the the course of their career, and that uh, you know that that's how that's how change gets made, and that's why I'm hoping that some of these teams can, if not figure it out, then at least get a better sense. Uh, of what's going on with the arm. You mentioned Sandy Koufax earlier, and for those who are listening who might not know, Sandy is a very, very private man. He doesn't typically grant interviews. How did you land the interview with Sandy, and how important was it to include him in the book? I I think if you write a book about the arm without Sandy Koufax, you didn't write a book about the arm. (laughs) Um, And... Uh, it was not easy to get him. It took me a couple of years, and even after a couple of years, uh, I needed uh, a ton of help from uh, the wonderful Jane Levy, who has written the definitive biographies on Mickey Mantle uh, and Sandy Koufax. And uh, Jane told Sandy that uh, he should talk with me, and I will forever be thankful to her for it. Yeah, very good. And that is a uh, the the book that you mentioned of Jane Levy is another great baseball book that she wrote about Sandy Koufax. I don't believe she actually spoke to Sandy in that book. Is that right? Uh, you know, uh, she did not speak to him for the text of the book, right. but uh, she was in contact with him, and uh, she had his blessing to do it. He just did not want to talk. See, so, and, and that's how uh, that's that, how that, private that, Sandy that, that, is. Yeah, that's well. That's that's how kind Jane is too. She wrote a book about Kovac that didn't quote him, but was okay with uh, mine doing so as well. So amazing. Uh, yeah, that was a uh, that was a pretty uh, that was bucket list reporting moment right there. <laughs> you uh, actually kind of broke some news with this book when you uh, mentioned when you talked about the process of the Cubs signing John Lester and kind of revealed that he is still pitching to this day. Actually, he just pitched a couple days ago here in Cincinnati. Uh, with a uh, floating piece in his elbow. Yeah, he, uh, you know, I think pretty much everybody has some kind of damage in their elbow if we're talking about pitchers. Mm-hmm. And so I I guess it was, I guess it was sort of newsy in that respect. Uh, and, and there was some concern, you know, both in the organization and the cluster, how is this going to affect things? But that just goes to show you, uh, you know, the peril of pitching. Uh, I mean, you guys saw it in Cincinnati with Homer Bailey. Like, mm-hmm. it's really difficult to get a pitcher and keep him healthy. And, uh, you know, ultimately you're just hoping and praying that it can happen. Yeah, and speaking of Homer Bailey, I wanted to get your take on on him as far as, um, you know, there was recently uh, an MLB.com article that, that suggested that the Reds might be rushing him. Do you? I mean, wouldn't you think that all cases I, yeah, are a little I, I, different? I, 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 no, I'm actually shocked that he's coming back as quickly as he is. I'm I'm shocked because I and and here's the thing: I don't know what his rehab has been like, and so maybe it has been, you know, spectacular beyond spectacular. But I have seen firsthand with Daniel Hudson uh, what happens when a guy comes back too quickly. Mm-hmm. And uh, it makes me nervous. Let's put it that way. Okay, okay. Uh, and, and going back to the John Lester thing, that's one of the the great things about uh, that I that I personally found in the book was how 
you know, not only, you know, you mentioned obviously that he might have something floating around in his elbow, but regarding Lester and the Cubs, how they courted him. And I think that's another great sidebar to, to the story. And in the book is, is how the Cubs brass kind of courted John Lester. And you go through that process in detail about, you know, he almost went back to Boston. He was, uh, you know, he was weighing the options and, you know, that's, I think uh, the, the general baseball fan will actually love reading that uh, process. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I sort of loved reporting that just <laughs> because I mean, I didn't, you know, I've been doing this job for a dozen years and you kind of understand how free agency works, but uh, pulling back the curtain on that a little bit, I think was important because, mm-hmm. Uh, you get to see the players' perspective, and you get to see the team's perspective, and uh, both of those things are unique and interesting, and uh, I think really important to to give a full picture of how uh, this whole game works. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, and you know the letters and the emails that that uh, that John received from both the the Cubs front office, and then the process of you know the the cloak and dagger envelopes with a with a figure inside that to me that was that that, that was just great and it's, and it's actually all true like, that's <laughs> the cool part about it like the stuff you think that does not happen in real life it actually happens <laughs> it's like a spy novel <laughs> yeah exactly you're gonna pick up the arm and you're gonna see John Lacara <laughs> exactly exactly hey Jeff another fascinating part of this book for me is that is the people who you met who are treating this injury, the injury to the ulnar collateral ligament through alternative methods. And you're pretty careful about not labeling some of these people quacks. And, and, <laughs> and in fact, you, uh, I, I will, I will allow others to do what I chose. Not to. <laughs> yeah. You're pretty careful about that, but you do actually hint that there could be some credence lent to, to some of their methods and and two of these guys who champion such alternative methods are former Cy Young Award winner Dr. Mike Marshall who a lot of people listening will recognize that name and uh, hold on to your hats on this one Tommy John Jr. Can you describe what it was Tommy like John, Tommy Tommy John the 3rd Oh the 3rd yeah Tommy John the 3rd who is the son of Tommy John the named yeah. at the, the great pitcher who who was the first to undergo Tommy John surgery. Can you describe what it was like talking to these guys about this topic, especially while trying to maintain a, you know, a certain level of objectivity? Well, Mike Marshall, I think is a really interesting case uh, because a lot of what he has, has researched has proven correct. I mean, he was uh, way ahead of everybody on uh, weighted implement training uh, and on the importance of uh, pronation and of the forearm muscles potentially stabilizing the ulnar collateral ligament. Uh, so he has been a pioneer, but he's very dogmatic and uh, believes uh, his way is the right way and the perfect way, and uh, anything that deviates even the slightest bit from it uh, is not good enough. So uh, I, I respect him for his convictions. Uh, I wish that uh, he would be a little more open-minded. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tommy John III uses uh, essentially electrical stimulation. And uh, stimulation works, don't get me wrong. I think electrical stimulation for muscles uh, is a very good thing. But the idea that a ligament is going to be healed uh, using e uh 
I don't know that I buy that. The science isn't mm-hmm. there to, to tell me that. But I, I've also learned that when it comes to the arm, uh, outright dismissing something is probably uh, not the right way to go mm-hmm. because you just never know what's going to be right. You mentioned a gentleman in the book named James Buff. Buff is doing great Buff. work and research. Buffy, yeah, he's doing great work and he's doing tremendous research in the area of arm injuries. Tell us why that his work may not be shared with the rest of the world. Well, Dr. Buffy was uh, uh, a student at Northwestern uh, and he started using musculoskeletal modeling to look at the the muscles in the forearm. And uh, he wrote a couple of uh, papers and uh, they were very well received, and uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers uh, then hired him. And so now his information uh, is property of the Dodgers, and uh, what he learns in his research will be part of the Dodgers' uh, intellectual property. And uh, that's, you know, it's, it, there's a conflict in the gaming phase. Is it right for teams to look at injuries as a competitive advantage, or is it better for all the teams to band together uh, and try and solve this for the better uh, betterment of the sport. Yeah, and that surprises me, especially now in this era where uh, the new commissioner, uh, Mr. Manfred, has you know preached this mantra of one baseball. I'm I'm surprised, and I know MLB is doing you know great work, and you can talk about that too, about you know trying to find a you know a cure to this epidemic. But I, I'm curious as to why, like you said, they are they're not banding together, but instead allowing you know these this great work being protected by you know certain teams i i think because it's it's new and uh that there are so few areas in which teams are allowed to to have competitive advantages these days uh that you know baseball looks at this like uh almost like a a balancing act and that taking this away is taking another area away and just how you know how libertarian uh do they need to be as a governing body, uh, in in this case, it's it's almost a, a moral issue more than uh, mm-hmm. a freedom issue, though. And I'd like to think that uh, the the health of arms and a kid, and if you want to really look at it uh, like a commodities uh, of these uh, future baseball players are are going to be prioritized over the now results uh, for any given team. Yeah, with that being said, Major League Baseball is, as we talked about, doing work, doing great work, actually, and trying to, um, you know, uh, take take care of this problem. Uh, can you tell us yeah, a little I bit mean, about what they're doing? Yeah, they've got, a, they've got some epidemiologists at Johns Hopkins studying injury data. Uh, they're tracking the, uh, the 2014 draft class for five teams. Uh, over a, a longitudinal study, just to get a get a better sense of uh, whether there are any commonalities among these injuries, and uh, they've started PitchSmart, uh, which is a website you can find at PitchSmart.org uh, with with guidelines for youth baseball players, and uh, says what uh, is the right number of pitches. It says what risk factors are, and uh, it's really there to educate parents and coaches. Jeff, you take a very objective approach in, in writing this book. However, however, you do offer commentary when it comes to the organization called Perfect Game. 
Can you tell the audience what perfect game is and how you think they might be harming baseball? Yeah, Perfect Game is a company that uh, is out of Iowa and came into existence uh, essentially to give kids in Iowa a chance to play more competitive baseball. But uh, it spread to the warm weather states, and now it is more or less everywhere. And uh, while the idea behind Perfect Game is not a bad one, uh, the execution of it and the way that it has promoted year-round baseball uh, is very dangerous to the game. Uh, if you play year-round baseball and pitch, you are five times likelier uh, to suffer an arm injury than kids who don't. That is not a coincidence right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a, a sad fact that uh, has been brought on by an organization that is stressing uh, competition among kids as young as 11 years old. And uh, I simply don't think that that is the right tack to take uh, when we're in the midst of an injury crisis that uh, you're encouraging uh, kids younger and younger to go out and throw harder and harder. And uh, Perfect Game says it cares about the arm. Uh, it needs to put its money where its mouth is because uh, so many times kids have been overthrown in their tournaments. Uh, I, I just, you know, I can very easily find those times. And uh, it could be your kid, too, and that's the scary part. Right. Have you have you spoken to any, like, you know, scouts or MLB front office types or even players who, who share your same opinion on this? Pretty much all of them. Yeah, <laughs> even the ones that played in Perfect Game. Yeah. Wow. Players are a little different because, uh, because they're they're connected to it, but uh, I think that the the you know front office people in particular uh, are almost unanimous uh, in their thoughts on the organization and on how if there were a viable alternative, they would that would be preferable to what there is now. And is there a a, a conflict of interest with Perfect Game in Major League Baseball? In what respect? As far as you know, the the organization perfect game um i think major league baseball i think you even kind of touch upon it in the book major league baseball would like to have you know this kind of uh i guess i want to say organization or entity run in-house yeah i mean baseball can do that and and should do that because uh baseball's incentives with with youth the youth program won't necessarily be monetarily driven like perfect games are Mm -hmm. Have you seen the rebuttals from Perfect Game boss Jerry Ford online? Yes, I I got a good chuckle out of that. <laughs> the 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 funny thing to me was you are referred to as the author. Your name was never. I mentioned. am I I am the author. <laughs> I I'm like I'm like Voldemort. He who must not be named. <laughs> and kind of along the same lines, and not entirely switching topics, but you've mentioned that you hope moms of young baseball players read this book. Why is that? Uh, because I think mothers are the ones ultimately with the power. I think they're the ones who can speak to to sons and daughters uh, best. And uh, even if you don't have a voracious knowledge of baseball, uh, the the concern there uh, is is going to be uh, heard. I think much better when it is coming from a mother than it might be a father. And uh, I look. Helping raise a baseball player is not a one-parent thing, nor should it be. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everybody should be involved, and 
Uh, you need advocacy on either one side or the other. You either need uh, a coach who knows what's best and will tell parents who want more that they're wrong, or you need parents who understand uh, the reality of this to, to tell coaches uh, who might get greedy that uh, it's not going to be with their son and it shouldn't be with anyone else's either. Very good. Before we let you go, Jeff, if you have time to talk a little bit about the 2016 baseball season as well as what you see or where you see the current and future status of these Cincinnati Reds. Uh, well, the Reds happen to be uh, in a really hard division. So uh, <laughs> this year, I'm, I'm, I'm not thinking this year is going to turn out particularly well. But uh, there, there are some very, very promising things in the organization right now. Uh, you look at uh, the young pitching, Desclafani and uh, Iglesias and Robert Stevenson and Cody Reed. Uh, I still think Brandon Finnegan's probably a reliever, but uh, his stuff uh, has been lights out. And, uh, the, you know, having the young arms they do uh, is definitely a boon. Uh, they just need more. And rebuilding is ugly, and rebuilding is rough, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, rebuilding is not fun on a fan base. But if done correctly... Uh, it can be very fulfilling. It's just going to take a little bit of time, and that's where the Reds are right now. Uh, they're going to have some lean years ahead, but uh, you know, if you are a fan, uh, just hope that uh, Dick Williams uh, knows as much as the organization believes he does and can set them on the right path. Yeah, and I think we've kind of seen that already with uh, as far as, you know, it, it, it's like you said, rebuilding is not fun because there's a lot of things behind the scenes that go into it. I think the fans are starting to learn about terms like service time and, you know, the the peak years of players. And, you know, uh, I think that's that's something that the folks in Cincinnati are going to have to get used to. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, they uh, they got to get used to it. But uh, it is it's the truth. And. Uh, the sooner they uh, the sooner they recognize it, I think the sooner everybody uh, is uh, going to understand that this was for the best and this is where they needed to be. Okay, that's Jeff Passan. Folks, do yourselves a favor and pick up his new book, The Arm. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Appreciate okay, it, man. Okay, man. Take care. That was Jeff Passan talking about his new book, The Arm, available now in bookstores everywhere. I hope you get a chance to read the book, as I'm sure you will not be disappointed. You can also read Jeff's columns on Yahoo Sports and read his tweets at Jeff Passan. That's J-E-F-F-P-A-S-S-A-N. The music you heard on today's show was from the latest album of the two-piece band David Wax Museum called Guest House. Guest House and all of David Wax Museum's music is currently available on iTunes. Thank yous go out this week to Jeff Passan, Rich Passan, the Cincinnati Reds, and my pal, Lisa Braun. A special thanks to the gold medalist of digital production, Nick Prince, this show's technical director, without whom this podcast would not exist. I hope you'll join me next time as we'll have a very special surprise guest whose name I don't even know yet. That's all from BOR Headquarters. Thanks for listening. I'm Jamie Ramsey. Expect good news.